Hey there. Before we get into our very special second annual Boxing Day episode, a quick heads up. Jay and I are going to be talking about the movie The Green Knight and the 14th century epic it's based on. If you don't want either spoiled for you, I recommend watching the movie before you listen to our conversation. It's available for free on Amazon Prime Video, or you can rent it for a few bucks pretty much everywhere else. And there's an added bonus. If you do watch the film beforehand, you'll understand just what the heck we're talking about. With that being said, let's get to it. I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and this is the second annual Boxing Day episode with my friend and longtime guest, Jay Shapiro. Jay, welcome back. I'm happy to be back. It's become part of my tradition now, too, Boxing Day with Michael. (laughs) I feel like we have one extra holiday just for the two of us. Lovely. (laughs) First things first, how have you been? The last time we spoke, you were in Mexico City, Mexico. Now you are in an entirely different country. Jay, where the heck are you? Hola. <laughs> I'm still in a Spanish-speaking country. I'm in Madrid, Spain now, which is awesome. I am excited to be here. It feels like home. To be honest, I love it, and I missed living in a big city. I started my exodus from New York when COVID hit, like many people, and have been bouncing around the world, and I feel like I've touched home. I've touched down, and no, it's great. It's wonderful. What are some things that you like about Madrid in comparison to Mexico City? Obviously, they're quite different countries, but I imagine not that culturally dissimilar considering the country that started Mexico is Spain. So what were the things that took you away from Mexico and what were the things that lured you towards Madrid? I think it was much more of a lure. Just always Europe was calling my name and my wife's name as a place to really settle and be home. Madrid's wonderful. I'm just still getting used to it, so I can't speak on its behalf too much. But I think what strikes the most about Madrid so far is the culture of hanging out with friends and staying out late. They famously eat very late. I'm still getting used to it. We're still at seven or eight o'clock, but they're like 10 o'clock. The siesta culture is very real. So it seems to be, I don't know about to Mexico, but compared to America, it's less efficient, hustle, bustle, do everything you can as fast as you can, running in place on a treadmill, it seems in New York, just as fast as you can. It seems like there's a better balance here, more respect for life, not just work. Seems like there's a lot of life here, a lot of people engaged in interesting conversations. As much as I can understand, my Spanish is still (laughs) lagging behind where it will be. Maybe I'm in a little bit of a blissful bubble, not hearing the dumb conversations around me, just imagining how wonderful they are. But it's great so far. Really great. The last time I was in Spain was a decade ago, so I'm not sure if it's exactly the same in this regard. But one of the things that struck me about it was how relatively inexpensive it was I remember I was able to get a three-course meal with a bottle of wine for 15 euros, which was just insane. Is it similarly affordable today? Wine is really cheap still. Three, four euro for a glass of wine at the most, even at a bar. That's been nice. It's affordable. But again, my benchmark was New York, so everything seems (laughs) affordable comparatively. Everything's affordable in contrast to New York City. Yeah, it's kind of like everything is clean if you've ever spent any time in San Francisco. Okay, one more question about Madrid, because you mentioned the ease of making friends. I think your wife and mine, speaking of things that have changed, I'm married now, and you and I are the same age. We were born in the same year. When you get to our age, like mid to late 30s, early 40s, I would imagine wherever you go, it can be harder to make friends because you might not be socializing in the same way. Or if you go to places where people usually socialize, you might be one to two decades older than everyone else there, like a concert or a party. So how have you found making friends, not only just in a new country, but at the age we're at? 
I just started that process, actually, because since my Spanish isn't fluent, that's a little intimidating to make friends in a different language. You have not yet made amigos. <laughs> well done, Michael. No, I, I joined a writer's group at an English bookstore that's in Madrid. It's run by a British guy and it's English speaking. All the books are in English. And I saw a bulletin board for a weekly writer's meetup. There's also a philosophy meetup once a month. So I joined that and that's the nice natural way to do it. Expat culture is funny because it is intimidating making friends in another language, at least for quite a while. So you do tend to cluster with other English speakers in places like that. And I don't have kids and you don't have kids. There's not a lot of natural clustering of like, oh, our kids were in nursery school together and then we just became friends. Once college ends and once maybe the traditional corporate America lifestyle, which seems to be changing quite rapidly, once those structures after high school and college disappear from your life, it takes a different amount of effort. So there's a nice natural one when you're an expat that you do have a little bit of a natural institution that you just belong to by being another expat. Yeah. It feels like both being an expat and having a kid is a kind of return to the base similarity that caused friendships when you were a child. Yeah. I have really good friends today who I met when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, who if I met them today, as good a guys as they are, I don't know if we would become natural friends because our personalities today are rather dissimilar. But because we became friends due to kind of a base similarity, like, oh, we were both nerds about this topic or we were both picked on. And so we sat at the same table and it establishes this very base commonality upon which a friendship grows. And then you reach adulthood and you're like, oh, wow, we're really not the same people. But by then they've almost become relatives. And it seems similarly with something like being an expat or just having a kid, there don't have to be that many commonalities on top of it to draw you together, like, oh, wow, we both produced a child. Very cool. Or, oh, wow, we're both not natives of this country and we're looking for someone who speaks our language. But from that base similarity, friendship can grow. Yeah, it's like a creative limitation almost. You know, when they talk about putting limitations in your your creativity can be helpful. Oh, yeah. Like the writer's group. I'm not going to insult them, but you get in there and you realize, oh, this is a bit of a, you take what you can get. (laughs) There's only so many of you here. Yeah. But that's also this incredible thing where like, I might not normally have struck up a thing, but hey, there's a lot to discover here. You said friends that you had since like you were 12 years old. Do you know the very last line? This is not the movie that we watched together similarly, but do you know the very last line of Stand By Me by Stephen King? It's one of my favorite movies. Ah, confession. I've never seen it. Oh my God. Next Boxing Day. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Uh, But the very last line, this won't ruin anything because it's beautiful. But he just says, I never had friends later on like the ones I did when I was 12. Jesus, does anyone? Yeah. That's the last line. And then they play Stand By Me. And yeah, I won't ruin the rest for you. But anyone who's seen the movie knows exactly the scene I'm talking about. And it's true and beautiful. But yes, that is not the movie that we watched. (laughs) It is not. But before we get to that, I want to touch briefly on the return temporary, but not forever temporary, the return of the Dilemma podcast. You recently released three episodes in fairly quick succession, all about the same general topic from slightly different angles. I would love to just briefly talk about that and what caused you to come back, because I know the Dilemma podcast is, I think, just because of how busy you've been with all your numerous other projects, which you address in the very first episode of this three-parter, but you felt compelled to come back. So what did you come back for and why did you decide that it was necessary to talk about this topic? It's not temporary, but Dilemma is just me. I explain it in there and yeah, I'm busy on a lot of other things and I love Dilemma and it will always be a part of me. So like I tell everyone, I keep it in your subscribe chain and it'll pop up when I do it. But I want to try to get back into it because I realize how healthy it is for me to be engaged with it. 
But what brought me back specifically from a sort of dormant state, of course, was what has blown up in Israel and Gaza. It's all explained in the episodes themselves. So if people find them, two of them are solo essays. And then the third is an interview where I had a guest, David Livingston Smith, who's an expert philosopher and psychologist on dehumanization. So I don't know how much you want me to sort of break into it now, a light episode on Boxing Day, but this is a teaser for anyone out there. I grew up in a Jewish American suburb, suburban household, and not overly religious in a God way, but very tribal in a Israel way which is pretty common. Culturally Jewish, I've heard. Yeah. And you know, it's funny that culturally Jewish is sort of code for like, well, Israel stuff. It's been a big issue (laughs) in my life, in my intellectual life growing up. And I've stayed quiet about it for a really long time, which are for other reasons that I explained in the podcast. And I think that was a mistake. Yeah. People will just have to listen, but I don't think my story is rare. And you know, if people are listening to this because they're tired of hearing that topic or there's been a lot of it out there, I totally hear you. I think my take on it, one sort of a philosophy nugget that I wanted to put into the mix and the other was a little bit more of a personal tale, will be good for people to hear in a way that's not just partisan, you know, yay Israel, boo Israel, yay Palestine. Like, it's different than that. And I hope it also strikes a more hopeful tone about hopefully how we can, we, I'm saying American Jews, I'm saying post-Holocaust Jews, help save this project of Israel from itself, from really imploding on itself. And I know that's a loaded way to tease the episode and the conversation and the take I have, and I could just leave it there for now. But I'm quite worried, not just about the dominoes that could lead to a regional or global war or whatever that everybody I'm sure has done in their mind, but on a moral level for the soul of who we are as people while this is happening live. So there you go. Eloquently said, I implore anyone who's listening who wants to hear a very nuanced, rooted in philosophy take on this issue. And also, again, coming from a very personal perspective, rooted in your own experience as a Jewish American growing up in this culture and the political forces at play, highly recommend. But we could probably talk about this for another hour, but I don't want to skimp on the movie that we both watched. So last year for Boxing Day, we both came with one movie each that left a big impact on us and we had the other person watch it. And then we both talked about our experiences either growing up with that film and what it meant to us. And then what did we think about the film that was recommended to us? This one's a little different. This one, we both watched a movie that came out within the last several years that neither of us had seen. So it's a relatively new movie. It doesn't have any emotional significance to either of us or our young adult lives or our childhoods. And it's one that's been on my radar for a while. And I'm I'm really glad that we got a chance to watch it. And it takes place on Christmas Day. It is The Green Knight by David Lowry, starring Dev Patel and co-starring Alicia Vikander and Joel Edgerton. And I really enjoyed it. What did you think about it, Jay, before we get into the summary? I liked it. It's not the kind of film I normally watch. Same. Yeah. And I think you told me people had recommended it to you and I want to know who those people are. Yeah. But I liked it. It was described as a love or hate film. People either really loved it or they went into it thinking it was going to be one thing like this action epic and it just turned out being something completely different and that turned them off. Yeah. I watched the trailer and I was like, oh, this is some like Game of Thrones kind of thing. And I was like, that that looks fun. And then, yeah, it wasn't. This was a really fun exercise to actually think hard about it. There's a ton of symbolism and stuff going on in it. So upon analyzing it a little more because you gave me this assignment to watch it carefully, 
I think I got way more out of it. And I like it. I think it's pretty compelling and successful at what it tries to do. So I don't know how you want to attack it. I don't know if there's a rating system in there, but it's, it's a thumbs up for me. I totally am into it. We may have to come up with one. So for our listeners, for some added context, the movie is based on a late 14th century chivalric romance originally written in Middle English. And a chivalric romance is, for our listeners, quote, a type of prose and verse narrative that was popular in the noble courts of high medieval and early modern Europe. They were fantastic stories about Marvel-filled adventures, often of a chivalric knight, portrayed as having heroic qualities, who goes on a quest, end quote. There were a lot of epics written in that time, and it's distinguished from the others, which were usually more masculine and militaristic epics. It was distinguished from them by having a much higher emphasis on love and courtly manners about what was right and wrong. If you were a knight, what was the correct way versus the incorrect way to behave? And it's interesting. There's a lot of it that it keeps the same. In the original story, there's King Arthur and his knights at a round table. And there's Sir Gawain, who is a less accomplished knight. He hasn't had many adventures. And it takes place on New Year's in the original story, not on Christmas, which the movie takes place on. In the original King Arthur, he's at the round table with his knights and they're just about to start New Year's celebrations. And he asks if anyone at the table could regale him with a story of adventure and no one says anything. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a green knight appears, this bright green and his horse is green. And he appears with a giant axe and he offers a game up to King Arthur and his men. He says, if any of you would like to partake in this game, I will let you strike me however you want. And then a year and a day from now, I will strike you the same. That is the pact. And none of the knights step up. And then King Arthur is about to step up. But Sir Gawain does instead. And the green knight bears his neck as if to suggest, strike me here if you'd like. And Sir Gawain chops the knight's head off. And the knight does not fall to the floor, but instead picks his head up, says, I'll see you in a year and a day, and leaves on his horse. And then a year and a day later on New Year's Day, Sir Gawain finds the knight who lives in a green chapel, and now the time has come for him to get his head chopped off. So we'll talk a little bit about the full story and how the movie diverges from it, but that's the general gist of it. And the movie largely stays true to that general outline, but I thought it would be interesting to just get into it. And maybe you can talk a little bit more, Jay, about what the plot of the movie is, but that's the general gist of the movie or of both stories and a decent amount takes place in between. But yeah, I'll let you take it from there. You might have to help me through. A lot happens in this movie. <laughs> yes. And interestingly enough, very little happens in the story. So in the movie, Gowan goes on a series of adventures. And then there's a third act that takes place at this magnificent castle where there's a lord and a lady there. And I can go into this a little bit because in the movie, there's a lot of other adventures that happen. And the actual story in the original poem, these stories are alluded to, like seeing giants and some of the other adventures but they're really just brushed over. You'd be like, and then he came across some giants and then we're moving on. But the, the movie lingers longer here, but where the poem spends most of its time and where the movie diverges most from the poem is when Gowan is made a guest of a magnificent castle that he comes across towards the end of his adventure by the Lord and lady of the castle that ends up being only a few miles away from the green chapel, which is what Sir Gowan has been searching for this entire time because he needs to fulfill his promise of this game that the green knight has imposed on him. Now he needs to make it to the chapel a year later, a year and a day in the story, a year exactly in the movie. And the Lord of the castle proposes a deal to Gowan each day. The Lord will go out hunting and give Gowan whatever he catches on the condition that Gowan gives him whatever he gains during the day. And after the Lord leaves, his wife, the lady of the castle, 
visits Gowan in his bedroom and tries to seduce him, but all Gowan can offer her is a single kiss, right? He doesn't want to do anything untoward. When the Lord returns, and this is what happens in the poem, that starts diverging here in the movie. When the Lord returns and gives Gowan the deer he's killed, Gowan gives the Lord a kiss without sharing its source. The lady tempts Gowan the next day too, and Gowan rebukes her advances, except he gives her two short kisses. The Lord returns that night, and Gowan gives the Lord two kisses, but again doesn't say who he got them from. The lady returns a final time on the third morning, and Gowan denies her advances again. She offers him a gold ring, and he refuses it. Finally, she pleads that he take her enchanted gold and green sash, which she says will keep him safe from all physical harm. And Gowan, knowing that he's likely to die the next day, he accepts the sash in exchange for kissing the lady three times. That evening, the final evening before Gowan leaves for the Green Chapel the next morning, the Lord returns with a fox that he killed. And Gowan gives the Lord three kisses, but does not mention the sash that he was given. So the next day, he binds the sash around his waist and travels to the Green Chapel, where he encounters the knight. Gowan exposes his bare neck to receive the blow from the Green Knight's axe, but flinches as the knight is about to strike. And again, this is what happens in the poem. The Green Knight belittles him for this. The knight goes to strike a second time, but pauses before he makes contact, telling Gowan he was testing his nerve. And angered by this, Gowan tells the knight to get it over with. And the knight strikes with full force, but only causes a slight wound. And that ends the game. And then the Green Knight then reveals his true identity. He is the lord of the castle himself, but he's been transformed by magic. And the entire adventure was a trick by the unnamed old lady who was also present in the castle, who turns out to be Morgan Le Fay, who is King Arthur's stepsister. And Gowan received a nick on his neck, rather than no damage at all, because he did not divulge the gift of the sash to the Lord. Gowan is filled with shame because of his deceitful behavior, but the Green Knight pronounces him, quote, the most blameless knight in all the land, end quote, and the two part ways on good terms. Gowan returns to Camelot wearing the sash as a token of his failure to keep his promise, and the Knights of the Round Table absolve him of blame and decide from then on, to all wear green sashes as a reminder to be honest. Wow. And so the movie does not go that route (laughs) and goes a totally different one. But that is a summary of the tale. The tale is really about a green knight coming to King Arthur's court, challenging anyone there to a game. Gowan, who is an unaccomplished knight, says he'll do it, chops the green knight's head off, and then the rest goes from there. But the movie diverges quite a bit. So with that, Jay... Yeah, I could say the parts where it diverged a little bit. Do you want to just get into sort of like what the symbolism really was about? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's a very visually striking film. Yeah, it's it's a gorgeous film. But I mean, cinematography was stunningly good in it. I don't remember the name. I looked up the crew because I wanted to give him credit. Almost all of the effects were practical, save for a few that you can probably spot. But the Green Knight, who is this hulking tree of a man, was almost exclusively practical. It looks just beautiful. The lighting is beautiful. It's really a pretty film. Yeah. And the cinematographer was Andrew Draws Palermo. That's it. I looked his credits up. He's, he's done a few good things. While you were talking, by the way, it reminded me so much that I just didn't realize this because obviously I didn't know the poem or, or any of the Screen Knight stuff before. But the game with Michael Douglas is very much a version of the Green Knight. Oh, yeah. This is another spoiler, but that was a whole ploy of a false thing. And he had to prove his worth and jump off a building at the end. And, and they revealed it was all a trick. You passed. I guess it's a pretty old motif to have a quest and pass it while God is watching or whatever's watching. It's an old biblical story too. To get into it, 
Gowan is a stand-in, it seems, for a lot of young men at the moment. I mean, I'm just trying to get into the head of the filmmaker of why he wanted to make this now. And we should say, too, that in the movie, Gowan is even less accomplished than in the book. In the movie, he's made as this aimless young man who drinks all night and sleeps all day and sleeps with a common woman and is just wasting his life away. And in the movie, it's his mother who is this kind of witchly woman. And she's the one who summons the Green Knight, almost as if to force her son to become a man. Yeah. There's about three minutes at the beginning of character development, and then you're in. As far as what happens before the knight gets there, they're very efficient. He wakes up with water thrown on his face and his girlfriend that he wants to mess around with, but she's like, I got to go to church. And he's like clearly in a brothel. They basically get it out of the way really quickly that he doesn't have much going on in his life, but he's the nephew of the king. And so he's in the club. He just doesn't have a legendary story yet, which is cool. That was effective enough and quick. They got it out of the way and then got on with the fun stuff. But I think if people didn't pick it up from your walkthrough of the poem, what the Green Knight represents and who he is and all of that, and you don't need to dig too deep to get it, but it's time and death. Because there's a scene in the middle, I guess it's at the castle in the poem, and it's just a grand manor in the film, where the temptress played by the same actress who is his girlfriend at the beginning, which is a kind of cool trick. There's a lot of this fantasy stuff going on. You're not sure what's real or what's a dream. This whole thing might just be in his head. It's really cool that way. But she just spills the beans in this really nice written speech, but it's very expository where she tells you why, who the Green Knight is and what he is. And it's death. And it's cool because in classic depictions, you think death is always black. It's always represented by this Grim Reaper, but this green color is cool. And she explains that green is the color of moss that takes over. She says, when we die, I think she says your coins are gone and stuff. It was nicely written about like, When humans are gone, the greenery is going to take over again. It's the color of the inevitability of nature without us. It's so indifferent to us and it will conquer us and it will take us. But simultaneously, and when you die and you are in a field, you're just going to be food for the trees. You'll be green, right? But green is also this symbol of life and of rebirth and all these kinds of things. So it's, it's a lovely metaphor for this dichotomy of life and death, or let's say, life without death, death without life. And of course, the belt, this really crucial thing, we could get to the ending when we get to it, but this magical belt that will keep him from any harm is the thing that he, at the end, realizes he has to shed what is life without death, without the knowledge of real death and real harm and and real failure. I think generally, Gowan's story is cool. It's a coming-of-age story. It's a boy trying to grow up. And as I was going back through it, as we were preparing for this, he fails all of these tests along the way. He's kind of like a dope, (laughs) like the entire time, which is cool for your main character in this night to be bumbling through all of these little tests along the way. He doesn't really know exactly what he's doing, but at the end, I guess he finds this little bit of courage or whatever it is, or pride or this knowledge that he can't run away from death forever. It's inevitable. It comes for everybody including him. And he has this vision for the listener who hasn't watched it. I'm skipping to the very end and this very long, weird montage, right? Just to jump in real quick for some context. In the movie, when he finds the Green Knight, the first two strikes go the same way where he flinches and the knight chides him for it. And then the knight goes again, but doesn't swing. And then when he's about to strike the third time, Gowan runs away. And what we think is a real sequence returns and eventually becomes king. King Arthur dies and he becomes king. And it starts this whole sequence and I'll hand back off to you. I mean, it's like a 15 minute montage almost of this other life where he is 
granted knighthood, even though he didn't appear to pass any of the tests or keep his word. He almost looks ashamed of it. And then he takes the crown and he has a son and the kingdom is also like in shambles. He looks miserable and he's sitting on a throne, but he's not happy in any of them. And his portraits on the wall and all this stuff. It's just sort of like this hollow vision of a life. And it lasts a long time. There's no speaking. There's just music over it for quite a while. And then it finally ends the sequence where everybody walks away from him on the throne. And he's left alone there as this older man. As the castle's being besieged. Yeah, the door is being broken down. It's just all crumbling around him. He's wearing this crown. And then he goes to grab, finally, this magical sash, this green sash around his waist, and he pulls it. And it's almost like coming out of his body at this point. It's very violent the way he's yanking it out of his body. And when he finally gets it out, then his head falls off. And it's a cool shot of his headless body on the throne and his head on, on the ground. And then, I don't know if you say he wakes up or if this was all a dream or a vision, but he's back before that third blow with the knight. And he's, the way I, I interpreted it is he's had this kind of vision of what running away would mean and what that would play out as. And then they have this kind of short conversation. And it's a great last line where the Green Knight, what does he say? Like awards him for his courage and says you passed or something. Yeah. And he leans in and he says, now off with your head after Gowan takes off his sash. All right. Gowan takes off the sash being like, now I'm ready for the blow. So it could actually kill me. And that was the big part. And yeah, off with your head. And then the movie ends. Does he kill him then or did he pass the test? I, I tend to think he passed. And that off with your head is also a reminder that you passed this, but death still will come one day. Yes. Go live your life and then off with your head one day. Like all of us. <laughs> Go live with honor and become the knight that you want to be or whatever it is. And then also, I'm still here and I will come for you anyway one day. So you can't outrun me anyway, so you may as well, you may as well go now. There's so much symbolism throughout it that we could go through with the fox and the mother as blindfolded and all this kind of stuff. But in the end, I wonder who's loving and hating it, but it does seem to be of the time. There's almost the perpetual adolescent who refuses to grow up or doesn't know how to grow up in our world and doesn't know what that looks like. This must speak to them or scare them, or at least it's something at some point. And I'm saying them, it's all of us. There's a nice amount of universal projection that you could do in the film and relate to. At least I could. Yeah. I think death is framed as the ultimate responsibility because it is the ultimate result. What you decide to do or not do with your life, death will come to judge you because your life is over. So what you do or don't make of your life, and we see in the beginning like Gowan is making nothing of it, and he's not stepping up to the responsibility that could be his if he grabbed it. And I see death framed to your point about that beautiful speech about mosques basically green representing in a way that the thing after death, it will come for you and cover your body and just wash you away. In some ways, death is the ultimate judge because once you're gone, all those days, and I, I'm thinking about this because you know I'm, I feel like I'm a little under halfway through my life now if I have a, a decently long life. It's like what you decided to do or not do with each passing day, each individual day can just feel like, eh, it was Saturday on the couch and that's fine. It's just one day. But there's imagery throughout the film. There's circular and circle imagery all throughout the film over and over and over again. And if anyone's familiar with a Punch and Judy puppet show. Those are my favorite little scenes, by the way. Those little puppet shows were so cool. Now, I don't know if those exact puppet shows existed in the 14th century, but they exist in this movie. They're telling the tale of Gowan. He has yet to encounter the knight, but his story of how he beheaded this green knight and everything that happened afterwards has spread throughout the land. So everyone knows who he is, basically. 
And there are these children that are watching this Punch and Judy show where there's this green knight and there's Sir Gowan and they're coming along as these little puppets. And Gowan goes up and he takes a sword and he chops the green knight's head off. And there's this felt blood that comes out of the knight's neck. And then there's this circular calendar that has all four seasons on it. And the calendar is rotated in this puppet show and they return to winter. And now the green knight and Gowan meet again and the green knight has his head and the green knight comes with his axe and chops off Gowan's head and the red felt comes out. But we see repeatedly in a montage, this circle, this like wooden circle that's been painted with all four seasons, like turning and turning. And there's this idea of the passage of time. There's another moment, which was all done practically, by the way, very cool. So basically we see Gowan on the ground with mossy trees surrounding him and he's tied up and then the camera starts rotating. And then the next time we see him, his body is completely deteriorated and he's a skeleton. And then it keeps rotating again. And now we're back and he's there and he shocks himself out of it. And he's like, oh my God, I have to get up and do something. And he ends up going and finding, I don't know if it's a knife or his sword or the ax or something. And he is able to cut through his ropes. He cuts himself as well, but he cuts through the ropes and is able to escape. But that idea, again, the circular motion of the camera, just this rotating each year is going to go by so quickly and you're going to die at the end. And unless you do something about it, unless you take responsibility for your life and bring it into your own hands, you're going to die and be covered by moss with nothing to show for it. On that shot, it's like a three minute long shot where not a lot happens, which is right at the halfway point of the film, but it's beautiful. Yeah, it does this 360 and then it actually reverses the move 360, almost like you're rewinding the clock and then he's alive. But the, the cool thing about that, also doing it practically, is that you described it well, but they're in the middle of the woods, right? So when you turn away and now you're not facing Gowan, you're just pointing at trees and you just keep going. The trees, it's such a nice reminder of the green thing because the trees and the nature don't change at all. Literally don't change because it was practical. I guess if you were going to be really technical, it would have decomposed like that over the course of a decade or something. You could have aged the trees. But the effect of the human body is just deteriorating like this. But nature is persistent and doesn't care. So like he sees, whether that's a vision or whatever, you see it, the future where he just doesn't get up and fight and dies is, you know, nature marches on and the green night comes for everyone and death marches on. And I just, yeah, it's a really cool shot. And then they use the same kind of idea later with the circle of turning back time. But yeah, that shot was an achievement. Oh, yes. And there were two quotes from Joseph Campbell that I want to pull up that this movie reminded me of. And the first quote is, life is always on the edge of death. One should lack fear and have the courage of life. That's the principal initiation of all heroic stories, end quote. And the second quote was, we must let go of the life we have planned so as to accept the one that is waiting for us. And I thought both of those quotes were very apropos for this story. Yeah, those are good. I was thinking of this belt thing is such a big part of it, right? Another green circle. That's true, right? Was it his mom who made the belt at first? Or someone's wrapping it at first and then he's gifted it even later. Or maybe she's preparing it because she's like the sorceress who's in and out of the film in these weird ways. I think she might even represent the fox or the blindfolded woman. She's preparing it at the beginning and there's some inscription on it. I guess he's gifted it later. But it's, again, I just, you know, I'm 41, we're in the same age, but I'm thinking of younger men with a lot of this and my younger self with a lot of this. But I was thinking of video games a lot while, which I know <laughs> that's your industry as well, because there is a video game aesthetic to a lot of it as well, very epic kind of thing. The belt is the cheat code where you never die. You're playing a virtual game. It's like 
the difference between virtual worlds and the real world, ethically, morally, what it's worth, is a very old question. This is back to Plato's cave to bring it into that philosophy. And so no wonder this is such an old poem. It's in just about every religion, touches on the same motif. But in a virtual world, if this was all just Gowan wearing a headset, and he gets to start over, or he's punched in a cheat code, and he never dies, and he just wants to see how it all plays out, that's not life. What was also cool about his story there at the end, who he was as the nephew of the king, is the story of the puppet show. And even in his vision at the end, if he had run away, he would still be king. Like, he knows Uncle... Uncle Arthur, yeah. Uncle Arthur is going to tap him on both shoulders, and he's going to assume the crown. And what's cool also about that little puppet show is, like you said, it has the first half of the story that everyone knows. Oh, he chopped off the knight's head. Look at this cool knight. Wow, he's so brave. But it has the end of it, too, of, oh, look, he also kept his word and he got his head chopped off. They show that early on and the kids are all learning it. So he had a kingdom that believed he was a hero, that believed the whole story even before he had finished it that he was going to ascend to the throne anyway, but he knew the one thing that finally got him inside of him, he knew he hadn't earned that in some cosmic, honorable, you have to earn your place even if you know it's coming your way. There's nice universal themes here. The thought came to me that I was the coach's son. We may have even talked about this in other episodes. I played baseball growing up. My dad was the coach and I was the coach's son, which carried with it a bit of the Gowan anxiety of, I know... My dad was a good, fair coach. I don't think he was going to favor me. And I think I was a pretty decent player. But it was always like, I know I will get a slot in the pitching rotation, but I better earn it, right? I better work hard and keep my word and earn it. And that's a pretty powerful message to keep in place as well of earning it somehow. Yes. And just to switch gears, I just want to note something you mentioned earlier, which is that the movie is so visually striking. There are so many scenes in this movie That could just be stills and you could frame them in your home. The giants walking by in the canyon, just stunning. Him diving into the pond and turns this blood red from the light, this light that we can't explain that has just illuminated the entire pond with this blood red imagery as he's diving down to retrieve a a skull. It's just so beautiful. I haven't seen any of other Lowry's work, but I'm wondering if this is a marker of his films. So much of the movie is told in the edit. So what he decides to cut to, sometimes the cuts make sense and they're linear, like he's just cutting between characters, but in sometimes really unpredictable moments, or he'll cut to seemingly disparate imagery from an entirely different scene that is either taking place in the present or the past or the future. He'll intercut these images to kind of imbue the A scene, I guess you could say, with entirely new meaning or a tone that it otherwise wouldn't have if he didn't make these really drastic cuts away to sometimes seemingly, but usually related imagery. It was a way of telling the story in the edit, not just the imagery that I think really elevated it. And that combined with this very ethereal, haunting soundtrack. The soundtrack, I was going to say, was really good too. Yes. There's heartbeats that come in and out of it. The chorus of voices. Yeah. And voices that come out of, you know, the Fox has one line and I went back to listen to it, and then I did see that someone else had picked this up and wrote about it, that it was the mother's voice for a second before it switches. And there's this other shot. I have to give credit to the YouTuber who pointed it out. I don't remember the the handle that they have. But the shot of the Green Knight. So when he finally gets there to the chapel at the end and he's sleeping, one other cool thing about this death character, this Green Knight in the whole story is you don't get the impression that he would go hunt him down if he doesn't keep his word. 
He's just sleeping in the chapel. He's time. He's death. I'm doing my thing. Like, you'll come here eventually. I'm not going to go hunt you down. If you don't keep your word, that's on you, dude. And he doesn't wake up when he first gets there. I also like that. That's a really nice little moment about just time. Gowan's maybe half a day early. He gets there, it looks like Christmas Eve in like the evening. And Green Knight's not awake yet. It's not Christmas. And there's like a scene where he just kind of has to wait and look. And he's just sleeping in this weird tree formation. But then when he finally wakes up the next morning, because it's Christmas, that's the season. It's time now. His face morphs in this weird way. So someone pointed this out on YouTube that it actually like uses... I don't know the order, but it's his father and then his uncle or someone else and then his mother, I think, and then his face finally, and then it morphs into what he remembered the Green Knight to be. Maybe it's a little on the nose, but it's a cool effect and it's very subtle. If you're watching the film, it's when this light, again, unexplained, is flickering over his face and there's this very subtle shifting in his nose and in his eyes. But that is a reference to the girl who's, who was looking for her head in the pond, who I think becomes the fox, says the Green Knight is someone you know. And I think that the answer is it's everyone. The Green Knight is everyone because everybody shares this same fate. There's nobody you know. (laughs) You, your uncle, everybody comes here in the end and death comes for us all and it's you. And they're also watching you. Yeah, that's how I read it. So maybe that's right because so much of also my moral philosophy work of this theory thing that I'm writing on, so much I also always have the line in my head of who's the audience for your life and who should the audience for your life be? And maybe that's what you're getting at there of this green night, this moment for you is everybody is watching you and maybe you yourself are the most important thing. You're going to know. As everyone kept telling him, including the fox, being like, you could just turn around and tell everyone you did this. You don't have to go through with this. And that was his final vision of running away and becoming king and everything else. It's almost like a telltale heart Edgar Allan Poe thing of, you know that what you did in that chapel. No one else is watching. It was cool. But yes, the soundtrack is subtle in these ways too, with voices and whose voice is coming out of which character and super fun, super magical in a pretty effective way. I liked it. Yeah. The director, David Lowry said visually he was inspired by fantasy films of the 1980s like Willow and Excalibur. Oh, Willow. I love Willow. And you can definitely see that almost sometimes hallucinatory shocks of color And to the point of the Green Knight's face morphing into the relatives and the people he knew, people who know and and love you, and especially the ones who care about you, are judging you all the time. And I've had this experience. I've been the judge sometimes where you have a younger relative who has so much promise and you can see that in them when they're young. And you think to yourself like, oh my gosh, the things that they could do with this intelligence or creativity or ability. And of course, it's their life to live. You might not say this to them, but then they get older and they squander it. And you're disappointed because you could see what they could have been had they put themselves out there. Sometimes, no matter how hard you try, life doesn't go your way, and that's fine. But I think more specifically of if you don't step up to the responsibility and the gifts that have been given to you, and you don't take responsibility over your own life, whether the people around you who love you say it or not, they are judging you for squandering it. Yeah, there's some nice references at the very beginning when the knight comes in and Arthur whispers in his ear, being like, remember, it's just a game. And that was kind of his last advice before he went off and did this whole thing. And I I think that's fun because the backstory of Arthur is like he pulled the sword from the stone. It's in the very opening, actually, right? Like the very opening lines that are read in this Lord of the Ring, disconnected away from the mother. But Arthur also is like a veteran of some of these kinds of games (laughs) and has his prestige and everything else. Yeah. So it's like this double, it's this double thing, like you're saying, where it's just a game but take it seriously. 
it's life and death at the same time. And you just, you have to live it. It's a game, but that's it. Why not try to play by the rules that you think are, are worthy of it? And it's also nice because I have no idea how Gowan's life turns out after this quest or if what he does. It could have been a dream, right? Maybe the entire thing, that would have been maybe less satisfying if at the end he wakes up and he's in the brothel still with the water on his face. <laughs> but it could be basically deep down he knew, I want to be great, but why you're after it is the name of the game that it turns out in the end for him. And at the end, the one feat he does is the one he probably could have hidden and lied about. Who's that amazing actor who plays the thief, who I love in everything he's in? He was in Dunkirk. Oh, yeah. He's been in so much. Irish kid. He's so good. He's He was recently in Saltburn. Barry Keegan. That's it. Barry Keegan. Yeah. So Barry Keegan's character, the thief that comes across and, and ties him up in the scene that you've already mentioned with this very cool 360 shot. He helped him out along his way and Gowan doesn't give him enough charity. He takes him for granted and it kind of looks down on him as this lowly peasant later in the film when he's going to dive in and get this woman's head <laughs> from the pond. I like when he's like, are you real or fantasy? He's like, doesn't matter. I need my head. Just go fucking do it, dude. But he asks her before he jumps in, he's like, what am I going to get if I do it? And she's like, why would you ask me that? You're a knight. And Along the way, he keeps hinting at, wait, what's in it for me if I do this? And at the end, that's the almost simple lesson of what's in it for you is you will know what you did in this chapel. And that's it. That was the one reward that he already got. He had the fame of the kingdom. He had regaling tales and legends of who he was, but they weren't yet true. He knew it. They weren't earned and all he did was live it out. So he didn't get anything from it. He didn't gain anything from it materially in anyone else's mind. But he knew that he passed this little test in his own mind, even though off with his head still one day. That's cool. It's a really complex film, but a very simple film in the end when you distill it to what it's about. Yes, the structure is simple, but the visuals and the symbolism is complex. Like a simple wooden table with a beautiful detailed quilt laid atop it. Yeah. I liked the film, like I keep saying. I don't think it was like the greatest film I ever saw, but I recommend it. And it's a film that you should do the work for it and it'll be more enjoyable. In fact, it can't really be spoiled because it's so simple in a way. I don't know if you put a spoiler alert on this or not, but I think you'll get more out of it. I'll get more out of it on rewatches than I would on the first time, knowing that the story itself is so simple that I should actually be really focused on how interesting in detail of all the symbolism and, and the beauty of the shots were and things like that. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm looking forward to watching it again, now having seen it the first time and just being able to focus exclusively on what the images and sound tell us. Yeah. Are we going to talk about the, I always wonder if it's practical because we read so much about it, of the, let's say his little uh, reward in his hand when he was seduced <laughs> by the temptress. That prop, the art department nailed it, whatever they did there. I was like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> that's pretty realistic. Yeah, that was shockingly accurate prop work there. Shockingly accurate prop work, but yeah. Yeah. Some of it's really on the nose with the symbolism there of the, he finishes in his hand in this almost kind of pathetic way when she's trying to seduce him almost as a test that he's failing pathetically, but he's holding that sash in his hand with all of his personal mess on top of it in this way that like that, that stuff, maybe pornography in a way and masturbation and self-indulgence of these pleasures is pretty weak. There's no risk of getting hurt in love or relationship or actual sex or whatever, which he never, he wasn't capable of doing in the whole film. Which is interesting. There's not actually a sex scene in the whole film. 
But that scene was clever. Was really clever the way they delivered that, <laughs> delivered that that prop. I'm I'm glad they showed the shot because they shoot it in such a way where you're not sure what's happening off the screen, bottom left. But I was glad it was what it was. Yeah, all release, all reward, without any of the responsibility required of it, or risk, or risk. Yeah, risk. Jay, as we close out our second annual Boxing Day. It's always such a pleasure to catch up with you in any capacity. The year feels very much like the year that takes place in the Green Knight. It feels like it has flown by. So much has happened over the last year for both of us. Dude, yes, for you, a lot. And regrettably, I have not gotten that many opportunities, I think, because of the hectic nature of everything that's been happening to catch up with you. So from the bottom of my heart, I'm glad that we at least got to do it a little bit on this podcast, but I look forward to more conversations off mic. You know, we're recording this on December 15th. I, I leave for my honeymoon in two days. And this episode comes out on December 26th. As we head into the new year, are there any parting words you have for our audience or anything that you're looking forward to in the year ahead as the green will again consume? <laughs> I don't know. I was going to talk about you and how happy I am for you and excited I am for you for year one of marriage. The Green Knight is a good film for you to take into this this world because marriage and, and true partnership and whatever you and your now wife, which is always a fun word to say at the beginning, grow into. I love saying it. Yeah, I remember using it at a diner the first time I used it and the waitress was blushing because I was using it so much. I was like, I just have to. But it's a really amazing journey. And take the lessons of The Green Knight at heart that you are your own audience. <laughs> but now she knows too, and you know as well, and it can be a really beautiful partnership. So no, I'm just excited for you mostly. I want to hear how, how your year goes. I don't know who else I'm supposed to address. I'm just, I'm proud of you and happy for you. You've been on cloud nine. Have a fun honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jay. Just on a personal note, I really cherish what has become a, a friendship. So many good things have come from this podcast, so much good self-growth, so many amazing opportunities to talk with such talented people. But I, I honestly say with, with no sentimentality, the truth, which is I think that the best thing to come out of this podcast on a personal level has been our friendship. So I'm really glad that came about. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to 2024. You might be the only one on a personal level because I was going to say, I think 2024 is going to be an immensely difficult year for the world and geopolitics and American politics and everything else. So if I have words of sort of comfort is like, hang the fuck in there, because I think it's going to be, it's going to be rough. <laughs> it's going to be interesting. But let's all just try to really keep our humanity yeah, deeply and keep sharing that somehow and really understanding what that means, because it's a weird world out there. In so many ways, our world is much more complex than Gowan. <laughs> the challenges that the Green Knight hero has to face are spiritual and deep and the same as ours. But his, uh, the opening three minutes, like I said, if people just watch the film and just want to watch like the opening three minutes, you'll know what I'm talking about. Of I feel like 2024, the environment that, especially young men, this is really a boy film. I'm sure women should absolutely watch it to know what men are going through, but it does seem like a man film and a boy film in so many ways. The world of 2024 feels daunting in a lot of ways that Gowan had a really hard time. Yeah. I'm happy for you, but just stay on your honeymoon for a whole year. I think that's a good plan. I agree that I think for the world and for society, it will likely be a difficult year. But I would say like Gowan, I think it's best. And this is something that I'm struggling with. So this advice is also to myself. Focus on the things that are within the locus of your own control. Be a good husband. Be a good partner. 
be a good new friend at the bookshop that you recently discovered with a bunch of expats in it. Because there are so many things, and this is really for me speaking, it's so easy to worry about things that you literally cannot change. Whether that's a friend who you wish would do better or a political situation that you wish would change, none of that is within your control. But the things that are within your control, the things that I'm trying to focus on, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, am I a good man today? Was I honest? Did I wake up at a decent hour? Did I accomplish the goals that I set out for myself? Was I good to my wife? Was I a good son? Sometimes often fail at that. But at least I know day to day, if I can at least focus on what I can be and what I can control, which are very, very, very few things, then at least I feel good at the end of each day because I have spent way too much time fretting about things that are beyond my control and all they do is make me anxious and depressed. But if I can end each night saying, you know what, I said I was going to do this thing and I did it, or I said I was going to be this man and to the best of my ability, I was, that has been my guiding star as of late. Amen. (laughs) Yeah, I'll take some of that. Yeah, yeah. The control thing, it's tough because of to harken back and not to reopen it all again. A lot of my revisiting and awareness and contemplation about my Jewishness, American Jewishness, does seem to crack open a little bit of maybe there's more avenues for our control or influence than sometimes we are aware of. And those are also important to pay attention to and just hint it's not on social media. That's not where you're going to make the change. It probably is in your local environment and in your own head. But I do think as a species, we're going to have to get together and figure out what we can control a little bit or else the thing is going to spin out of control. (laughs) That's well said. Jay, I think the one thing within our control, within my control, is I want to make sure that we, one, keep in better contact with you into the new year. And also, I want to make sure that the next episode we record is not a year from now. So I look forward to talking with you about something interesting and critical and important at some point in 2024. So thank you again for coming on. I am glad that this is now officially a tradition and have a wonderful holiday. You too. I look forward to next year's suggestion, whatever we do. Last year, I really enjoyed it and I've been watching Kelly Reichardt films during the year. I think Old Joy is my favorite one that I've seen that she's done. So I love that movie. Keep them coming. We'll see what we come up with next year. But I appreciate it. And the sentiment is all completely returned. And go enjoy your honeymoon. Thank you. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. If you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts. 